Chapters 29 and 30 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 29. Soon after his father and mother had left him, Ernest dropped asleep over a book which Mrs. J. had given him, and he did not awake till dusk. Then he sat down on a stool in front of the fire, which showed pleasantly in the late January twilight, and began to muse. He felt weak, feeble, ill at ease, and unable to see his way out of the innumerable troubles that were before him. Perhaps, he said to himself, he might even die. But this, far from being an end of his troubles, would prove the beginning of new ones, for at the best he would only go to Grandpapa Pontifex and Grandmama Allaby, and though they would perhaps be more easy to get on with than Papa and Mama, yet they were undoubtedly not so really good, and were more worldly. Moreover, they were grown-up people, especially Grandpapa Pontifex, who so far as he could understand had been very much grown up, and he did not know why, but there was always something that kept him from loving any grown-up people very much, except one or two of the servants, who had indeed been as nice as anything he could imagine. Besides, even if he were to die and go to heaven, he supposed he should have to complete his education somewhere. In the meantime his father and mother were rolling along the muddy roads, each in his or her own corner of the carriage, each revolving many things which were and were not to come to pass. Times have changed since I last showed them to the reader as sitting together silently in a carriage, but except as regards their mutual relations, they have altered singularly little. When I was younger I used to think the prayer-book was wrong in requiring us to say the general confession twice a week from childhood to old age, without making provision for our not being quite such great sinners at seventy as we had been at seven, granted that we should go to the wash-like tablecloths at least once a week. Still I used to think a day ought to come when we should want rather less rubbing and scrubbing at. Now that I have grown older myself, I have seen that the Church has estimated probabilities better than I had done. The pair said not a word to one another, but watched the fading light and naked trees, the brown fields with here and there a melancholy cottage by the roadside, and the rain that fell fast upon the carriage windows. It was a kind of afternoon on which nice people for the most part like to be snug at home and Theobald was a little bit snappish at reflecting how many miles he had to post before he could be at his own fireside again. However, there was nothing for it, so the pair sat quietly and watched the roadside objects flit by them, and getting grayer and grimmer as the light faded. Though they spoke not to one another, there was one nearer to each of them with whom they could converse freely. I hope, said Theobald to himself, I hope he'll work, or else that Skinner will make him. I don't like Skinner, I never did like him, but he is unquestionably a man of genius, and no one turns out so many pupils who succeed at Oxford and Cambridge, and that is the best test. I have done my share towards starting him well, 
Skinner said he had been well grounded and he was very forward. I suppose he will presume upon it now and do nothing, for his nature is an idle one. He is not fond of me, I am sure he is not. He ought to be, after all of the trouble I have taken with him, but he is ungrateful and selfish. It is an unnatural thing for a boy not to be fond of his own father. If he was fond of me, I should be fond of him, but I cannot like a son who, I am sure, dislikes me. He shrinks out of my way whenever he sees me coming near him. He will not stay five minutes in the same room with me if he can help it. He is deceitful. He would not want to hide himself away so much if he were not deceitful. That is a bad sign, and one which makes me fear he will grow up extravagant. I am sure he will grow up extravagant. I should have given him more pocket money, if I had not known this. But what is the good of giving him pocket money? It is all gone directly. If he doesn't buy something with it, he gives it away to the first little boy or girl he sees who takes his fancy. He forgets that it's my money he's giving away. I give him money that he may have money and learn to know its uses, not that he may go and squander it immediately. I wish he were not so fond of music. It will interfere with his Latin and Greek. I will stop it as much as I can. Why, when he was translating Livy the other day, he slipped out Handel's name in mistake for Hannibal's, and his mother tells me he knows half the tunes in the Messiah by heart. What should a boy of his age know about the Messiah? If I had shown half as many dangerous tendencies when I was a boy, my father would have apprenticed me to a green grocer, of that I am very sure. Etc., etc. Then his thoughts turned to Egypt and the tenth plague. It seemed to him that if the little Egyptians had been anything like Ernest, the plague must have been something very like a blessing in disguise. If the Israelites were to come to England now, he should be greatly tempted not to let them go. Mrs. Theobald's thoughts ran in a different current. Lord Lonsford's grandson. It's a pity his name is Figgins. However, blood is blood as much through the female line as the male, indeed perhaps even more so if the truth were known. I wonder who Mr. Figgins was. I think Mrs. Skinner said he was dead. However, I must find out all about him. It would be delightful if young Figgins were to ask Ernest home for the holidays. Who knows, but he might meet Lord Lonsford himself, or at any rate some of Lord Lonsford's other descendants. Meanwhile, the boy himself was still sitting moodily before the fire in Mrs. J.'s room. Papa and Mama, he was saying to himself, are much better and cleverer than anyone else. But I, alas, shall never be either good or clever. Mrs. Pontifex continued, Perhaps it would be best to get young Figgins on a visit to ourselves first. That would be charming. Theobald would not like it, for he does not like children. I must see how I can manage it, for it would be so nice to have young Figgins. Or stay. Ernest shall go and stay with Figgins, and meet the future Lord Lonsford, who I should think must be about Ernest's age, and if he and Ernest were to become friends, Ernest might ask him to Battersby, and he might fall in love with Charlotte. I think we have done most wisely in sending Ernest to Dr. Skinner's. 
Dr. Skinner's piety is no less remarkable than his genius. One can tell these things at a glance, and he must have felt it about me no less strongly than I about him. I think he seemed much struck with Theobald and myself. Indeed, Theobald's intellectual power must impress anyone. And I was showing, I do believe, to my best advantage, when I smiled at him and said I left my boy in his hands with the most entire confidence that he would be well cared for, as if he were at my own house, I am sure he was greatly pleased. I should not think many of the mothers who bring him boys can impress him so favorably, or say such nice things to him as I did. My smile is sweet when I desire to make it so. I never was perhaps exactly pretty, but I was always admitted to being fascinating. Dr. Skinner is a very handsome man. Too good, on the whole, I should say, for Mrs. Skinner. Theobald says he is not handsome, but men are no judges, and he has such a pleasant, bright face. I think my bonnet became me. As soon as I get home, I will tell Chambers to trim my blue and yellow merino with etc., etc., all this time the letter which has been given above was lying in Christina's private little Japanese cabinet, read and re-read and approved of many times over, not to say, if the truth were known, rewritten more than once, though dated as in the first instance, and this too, though Christina was fond enough of a joke in a small way. Ernest, still in Mrs. J.'s room, mused onward. Grown-up people, he said to himself, when they were ladies and gentlemen never did naughty things, but he was always doing them. He had heard that some grown-up people were worldly, which of course was wrong. Still, this was quite distinct from being naughty, and did not get them punished or scolded. His own papa and mamma were not even worldly. They had often explained to him that they were exceptionally unworldly. He well knew that they had never done anything naughty since they had been children, and that even as children they had been nearly faultless. Oh, how different from himself! When should he learn to love his papa and mamma as they had loved theirs? How could he hope ever to grow up to be as good and wise as they, or even tolerably good and wise? Alas, never! It could not be! He did not love his papa and mamma, in spite of all their goodness, both in themselves and to him. He hated papa and did not like mamma, and this was what none but a bad and ungrateful boy would do after all that had been done for him. Besides, he did not like Sunday. He did not like anything that was really good. His tastes were low and such as he was ashamed of. He liked people best if they sometimes swore a little, so long as it was not at him. As for his catechism and Bible readings, he had no heart in them. He had never attended to a sermon in his life. Even when he had been taken to hear Mr. Vaughan at Brighton, who, as everyone knew, preached such beautiful sermons for children, he had been very glad when it was all over. Nor did he believe he could get through the church at all if it were not for the voluntary upon the organ and the hymns and the chanting. The catechism was awful. He had never been able to understand what it was that he desired of his Lord God and Heavenly Father, nor had he yet hold of a single idea in connection with the word sacrament. His duty towards his neighbor was another bugbear. 
It seemed to him that he had duties toward everybody, lying in wait for him upon every side, but that nobody had any duties toward him. Then there was that awful and mysterious word, business. What did it all mean? What was business? His papa was a wonderfully good man of business, his mamma had often told him so, but he should never be one. It was hopeless and very awful, for people were continually telling him that he would have to earn his own living. No doubt, but how? Considering how stupid, idle, ignorant, self-indulgent, and physically puny he was. All grown-up people were clever, except servants, and even these were cleverer than ever he should be. Oh, why, why, why could not people be born into the world as grown-up persons? Then he thought of Casabianca. He had been examined in that poem by his father not long before. When only would he leave his position? To whom did he call? Did he get an answer? Why? How many times did he call upon his father? What happened to him? What was the noblest life that perished there? Do you think so? Why do you think so? And all the rest of it. Of course, he thought Casabianca's was the noblest life that perished there. There could be no two opinions about that. It never occurred to him that the moral of the poem was that young people cannot begin too soon to exercise discretion in the obedience they pay to their papa and mamma. Oh, no, the only thought in his mind was that he should never, never have been like Casabianca, and that Casabianca would have despised him so much if he could have known him, that he would not have condescended to speak to him. There was nobody else in the ship worth reckoning at all. It did not matter how much they were blown up. Mrs. Hemans knew them all, and they were a very indifferent lot. Besides, Casabianca was so good-looking and came of such a good family. And thus his small mind kept wandering on till he could follow it no longer, and again went off into a doze. CHAPTER Thirty. Next morning Theobald and Christina arose, feeling a little tired from their journey, but happy in that best of all happiness, the approbation of their consciences. It would be their boy's fault henceforth if he were not good and as prosperous as it was at all desirable that he should be. What more could parents do than they had done? The answer, nothing, will rise steadily to the lips of the reader as to those of Theobald and Christina themselves. A few days later the parents were gratified at receiving the following letter from their son. Dear Mama, I am very well. Dr. Skinner made me do about the horse free and exulting roaming in the wide fields of Latin verse. But as I had done it with Papa I knew how to do it, and it was nearly all right, and he put me in the fourth form under Mr. Templer, and I have to begin a new Latin grammar not like the old, but much harder. I know you wish me to work, and I will try very hard. With best love to Joey and Charlotte and to Papa, I remain your affectionate son, Ernest. Nothing could be nicer or more proper. It really did seem as though he were inclined to turn over a new leaf. The boys had all come back, the examinations were over, and the routine of the half-year began. Ernest found that his fears about being kicked about and bullied were exaggerated. Nobody did anything very dreadful to him. 
he had to run errands between certain hours for the elder boys and to take his turn at greasing the footballs and so forth but there was an excellent spirit in the school as regards bullying nevertheless he was far from happy dr skinner was much too like his father true ernest was not thrown in with him much yet but he was always there there was no knowing at what moment he might not put in an appearance and whenever he did show it was to storm about something he was like the lion in the bishop of oxford's sunday story always liable to rush out from behind some bush and devour someone when he was least expected he called ernest an audacious reptile and said he wondered the earth did not open up and swallow him up because he pronounced thalia with a short i and this to me he thundered who never made a false quantity in my life surely he would have been a much nicer person if he had made false quantities in his youth like other people ernest could not imagine how the boys in dr skinner's form continued to live but yet they did and even throve and strange as it may seem idolized him or professed to do so in after-life to ernest it seemed like living on the crater of vesuvius he was himself as has been said in mr templer's form who was snappish but not downright wicked and was very easy to crib under ernest used to wonder how mr templer could be so blind for he supposed mr templer must have cribbed when he was at school and would ask himself whether he should forget his youth when he got old as mr templer had forgotten his he used to think he could never possibly forget any part of it then there was mrs j who was sometimes very alarming a few days after the half-year had commenced there had been some little extra noise in the hall and she rushed in with her spectacles on her forehead and her cap strings flying and called the boy whom ernest had selected as his hero the rampingest scampingest rackety tackety tow row roaringest boy in the whole school but she used to say things that ernest liked if the doctor went out to dinner and there were no prayers she would come in and say young gentlemen prayers are excused this evening and take her for all in all she was a kindly old soul enough most boys soon discover the difference between noise and actual danger but to others it is so unnatural to menace unless they mean mischief that they are long before they leave off taking turkey cocks and ganders o syria ernest was one of the latter sort and found the atmosphere at roughborough so gusty that he was glad to shrink out of sight and out of mind whenever he could he disliked the games worse even than the squalls of the classroom and hall for he was still feeble and not filling out and attaining his full strength till a much later age than most boys this was perhaps due to the closeness with which his father had kept him to his books in childhood but i think in part also to a tendency towards lateness in attaining maturity hereditary in the pontifex family which was one also of unusual longevity at thirteen or fourteen he was a mere bag of bones with upper arms about as thick as the wrists of other boys his age his little chest was pigeon-breasted he appeared to have no strength or stamina whatever and finding he always went to the wall in physical encounters whether undertaken in jest or earnest even with boys shorter than himself 
the timidity natural to childhood increased upon him to an extent that I am afraid amounted to cowardice. This rendered him even less capable than he might otherwise have been, for as confidence increases power, so want of confidence increases impotence. After he had had the breath knocked out of him, and had been well shinned half a dozen times in scrimmages at football, scrimmages in which he had become involved sorely against his will, he ceased to see any further fun in football, and shirked that noble game in the way that got him into trouble with the elder boys, who would stand no shirking on the part of the younger ones. He was as useless and ill at ease with cricket as with football, nor in spite of all his efforts could he ever throw a ball or a stone. It soon became plain, therefore, to every one that Pontifex was a young muff, a mollycoddle, not to be tortured, but still not to be rated highly. He was not, however, actively unpopular, for it was seen that he was quite square inter pares, not at all vindictive, easily pleased, perfectly free with whatever little money he had, no greater lover of his schoolwork than of the games, and generally more inclinable to moderate vice than to immoderate virtue. These qualities will prevent any boy from sinking very low in the opinion of his schoolfellows. But Ernest thought he had fallen lower than he probably had, and hated and despised himself for what he, as much as anyone else, believed to be his cowardice. He did not like the boys whom he thought like himself. His heroes were strong and vigorous, and the less they inclined toward him, the more he worshipped them. All this made him very unhappy, for it never occurred to him that the instinct which made him keep out of games for which he was ill-adapted was more reasonable than the reason which would have driven him into them. Nevertheless, he followed his instinct for the most part, rather than his reason. Sapiens suum si sapientium norit. End of chapter 30 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman